Welcome home. Welcome home. Let's look at the book of, books of Ezra and Nehemiah today, found in the Old Testament. About halfway through or so, we have Ezra and Nehemiah. Can you imagine that Ezra and Nehemiah, like many of the Old Covenant books, were originally one book? But you can understand why they were divided up. Prior to the invention of books, they were on scrolls. It'd be a little awkward to be studying the book of Ezra and say, you know, hey, roll it out, and around the six-foot mark, I want you to start reading here. So a lot of these larger scrolls were divided up, and Ezra and Nehemiah were divided up, but they do record a hundred or so years of history, and I want to draw some lessons from the books of Ezra and Nehemiah that I think will help to reorient us as we get back into the fullness of ministry, and also as we prepare ourselves for the inevitability of opposition. You know there's going to be opposition, right? Uh, This isn't going to be a a smooth journey forward. Two things thematically that you need to understand about Ezra and Nehemiah. The first is that the book is largely, these books are largely about God's favor being bestowed upon his people as they're released from exile. And secondly, some of the unique challenges they face. So contextually, we know that um, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah record period of history from approximately 538 BC to up and around 425 BC. So a little over 100 years. And the context is, and some of you already know this because you've studied biblical history, the people of God rebelled against God. God said, enough's enough. You're taking me for granted. You're off the captivity. So they're attacked by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar comes in. He takes about 28,000 people into captivity and deports them to Babylon. He leaves the rest behind and he takes foreigners from other nations that he'd also captured and puts them into the land and they kind of form a new people group, which we'll talk about later in the message today. Now, We understand that what we just experienced these last three months of not being able to meet is unprecedented in Christian history. Even if we just looked at the period of Western civilization, which spans about the past 1,500 years, there's never been a time before in Western civilization where the vast majority of the global church has been banned from public worship for three months. You just experienced something that your grandfather, your great-grandfather, your great-great-great-great-great-granddaddy has never experienced. This has been an unprecedented time in human history, in Western history, and certainly in the history of the church. But it is not the first time that people of God have found themselves in a place of exile, unable to function as God had designed them to function. So if you think Old Testament, Old Covenant, you'll understand that The people of God were called to Jerusalem, not anywhere they wanted, but to Jerusalem, to the temple to worship God. God manifested his presence on the temple mount in an extra pointed, extra special way. That was the religious center to old covenant worship. There was procedures, there was processes, you couldn't just do it in your home. You, you, you came to the temple, you worship God, or if you're in the outlying areas, you worship regularly in the synagogues, but then you'd come back to the temple at least once a year to worship. All of that was shut down when the people of God were deported into captivity for 70 years. So we have that example. 
Going further back in history, we remember the days when the Jews were 400 years in Egypt. And some of that was good at the beginning, but then it got pretty nasty and they were put into slavery. And Aaron and Moses begged the Pharaoh repeatedly and with great patience, let my people go. Neither the Babylonian exile nor the Egyptian captivity were ever considered the new normal. No believer ever said, oh, this is great. Let's just stay here and get used to it. They understood that there was normal and there was abnormal. And while God blesses us and teaches us many things, when times are abnormal, it's still abnormal. There are things that God has called us to do that we've been unable to do for the past several months. And so while we are grateful for the experiences and lessons that God has learned, we want to move forward, or might, one might say back, to the place where God had positioned us. Now, I, I don't want to be naive by not acknowledging that the circumstances experienced by the Jews for centuries in Egypt or seven decades in Babylon are absolutely parallel to what we've gone through. I understand they're not. But there's still that sense of separation. There's that sense that things aren't right. Things aren't normal. We're embodied creatures. We need to be in people's presence. So I want to ask you this question. As we come back together, having spent the last three months or so in our own little exile and isolation, my question is now what? Now what? What do we do? How do we move forward? Now that we've been freed, (laughs) the decree has been issued, the provincial order has been signed, now what? What's interesting is that when the people of God were released from captivity in Babylon, it was a godless king that told them what they were supposed to do. I suspect that they were a little bit like deer in the headlights. What do we do now? We're so used to this 70 years. What do we do? It was the godless king that was used of by God to say, aren't you guys supposed to be worshiping or something? So join me in Ezra chapter 1, again, circa 538 BC. Ezra 1, 1 says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, Persia, I thought we were in Babylon. Well, the Persians had beaten the Babylonians, Babylon had crumbled, you know, superpowers come and go. And now a new king was on the scene. And in his first year, didn't take 10 years, didn't take 20 years, in the first year of his reign, the word, he says, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. What does that tell us? God sovereignly controls all people. And if God wants to stir a heart, he's going to stir a heart. So the time was up. And how did he act? It says, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put into writing, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. Before you read any further, know know this. He's not a Christian. He's not an old covenant man of God, as we would understand it, he probably was a worshiper of Zoroastrianism, 
which is one of the world's oldest religions. And yet in this particular century, it was the dominant religion of Persia. So they worship different gods, but this is not a Christian, a man of God as we would understand him. So with that in mind, listen carefully to his words. Again, this isn't Pastor Cyrus speaking. This is the Persian king. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. We could discuss whether or not this man understood what he was even saying as we understand it. And I would propose that he probably doesn't understand really what he's doing on a deep spiritual level. But God still stirs his heart and he issues a decree for the people to go back to Jerusalem and says to them, and by the way, you need to start worshiping when you're there. Isn't that like an incredible event? God actually intervenes in human history, folks. He intervenes in human history. Again, our circumstances drastically differ. They were cut off from the land and from the place of primary worship. We've been cut off from each other, from many great commission ministries and so forth, from visiting the sick and the dying. They had reduced worship outside of Zion. Our worship has been reduced uh, reduced to Facebook. Circumstances are different but you can see some parallels. God was faithful to his people back then. He's been faithful to us now. But again, no faithful follower living in Babylon would ever have said, I'm okay with this. This is fine. It's not fine. This has not been fine. Has God taught us many things? Yes, he has. But the last three months have not been fine. They've not been normal. They're abnormal. And that's why we had to fight to bring things back to the way that they should be. But based upon the fact that in verse 3, Cyrus actually tells the people where to worship. I want you to worship in Jerusalem. And he says, I want you to rebuild the house of the Lord. Rebuild the structures of your worship. And he acknowledges that God presents himself to his people in Jerusalem. You know what I, I, I was sort of thinking a little bit about? I wonder if while faithful followers understood that Babylon was not their new normal, I wonder if there were many that sort of thought, oh, this is normal. This is, this is okay. And I wonder if like a deer caught in the headlights, surprise, I'm going to get run over. If some of these ancient believers were just paralyzed, it's like, what do we do now? The provincial order's been written. What do I do? And they were just paralyzed in their tracks with all sorts of earthly considerations. The government told them what to do. And some of the people of God still didn't know what to do. (laughs) 
God used unbelievers to free his people. And, but it was the unbelieving king that had to say, and go and worship your God in Jerusalem. Return to that which is normal. Return to that which is sanctioned by God. We know that through various means, God refines his people, does he not? He refines his people through exile. He refines his people through illness. He refines his people through mourning. He he refines his people through division, actually. Division in the church. He separates the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats. He refines his people through economic turmoil. God refines his people, but why does God refine his people? What what does he want? Like, now what? What do you think? How about this? Exile is intended to prepare us for greater worship. Exile is intended to prepare us for greater worship. Go and worship. Why were they in exile? Because they were lazy. They were lackadaisical. They lacked vision. They were enthralled with the world. They were worshiping their own idols. I don't know, and I certainly wouldn't want to propose, because I don't know the mind of God, that what we've just gone through is necessarily a judgment from God, but it could be. It could be God's way and means of refining the modern church, saying, hey, you know what? You were taking a lot of things for granted. You were taking freedom of worship for granted. You were absolutely convinced your RRSPs were lock solid and tight because you had the world's best you know, investment banker on your side, and now they're, they've dropped. You were sure because you're, you're healthy, you, know, you're, you run daily, uh, take your Flintstone vitamins, that you know, your health could never be touched, and, and all of us have felt at some point or another a certain vulnerability God has reminded us in a very tangible way what the best preacher has trouble putting into words. And that is that we are vulnerable and fragile people. And this life is just a moment of time wedged between two very long eternities. And yet what we do in this life and with this life matters. If you fast forward in Ezra... There's a lot of description in Ezra 1, Ezra 2, Ezra 3. You get into Ezra 3. Ezra is a lot about narration and recording of historical events. But in Ezra 3, as the people wind it back in the land, in chapter 3, verse 11, they finally sing these words responsively to God. They say, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. This would be a good thing for us to say as a church. We'll take the word Israel out and we'll put in the church. But could you say with me, for he is good? Could you also say, for his steadfast love endures forever toward the church? It's true. It really does. The people of God understood the proper response to release is worship. Acknowledging God. Now they had their own fears, and we have our own fears Fears slow us down. Fears bring disunity, but they can also refine the church, as I've said. There's a virus out there that could kill you. That's true. But if you are going to function 
you must be crystal clear on what your mission actually is. Do you understand what your mission is? Never lose sight of it. Whether you're sick, whether you're out of work, whether you just went through a relational breakdown, the people of God can never lose sight of our mission and purpose. And our mission and purpose is ultimately to glorify God. And God is glorified as we make disciples that in turn come and glorify God. This is the vertical lifestyle we talk about. And we can never take our eyes off of that. And we can never be satisfied with anything less than that. And we can never call anything less than that the new normal, much less normal. It's not normal. God has called his people to worship him. And there is a system and there is a place and there are procedures and there's a structure attached to that. God has called us to gather as his people to worship. We've not been called to rebuild a wall. They were, but we've been called to worship as were they to praise him again and again and again. How has God been refining you through this? I must ask. I hope you've been thinking about that. Otherwise, your quarantine might be wasted. How has God been refining you? I I suspect, as I've mentioned already, that one of the ways God is refining a lot of us is just reminding us how vulnerable we are. And even if the virus doesn't particularly rattle your cage, I'm sure many of you have wondered, I wonder if I'm going to be employed tomorrow. I wonder. I I wonder if if the world's going to just fall apart. I wonder if this is the end of the end of the end of the end. We can't take these things for granted. And I would also suggest that if, if you actually learn even one of those lessons and you learn it permanently, then the whole quarantine was absolutely worth it. If you could just learn one of those lessons permanently. A lot of younger people in this room too. You got a, life, a lot of life of, ahead of you, Lord willing. If you can learn these lessons now, it could permanently alter the way that you live your life and where you put your hope in. Exit your exile as a more committed worshiper. Don't waste your quarantine. Now, the joy of release, we need to brace ourselves as well. Sorry to be a downer, but the joy of release can also lead to opposition. And this is what happened to the Jews. 70 years, freedom! They're out there worshiping God, and then there's some opposition. Remember I said some people were left behind, and some Gentiles were imported in? What generally happens when people groups start to live in the same area? They intermarry. And new ethno-linguistic groups rise up. Well, this is what happened in Israel, and a new group of people, a different ethno-linguistic group called the Samaritans, now dominated Israel. Uh, an admixture of Jews and Gentiles. Well, they had components of Judaism in their worship and components of their former religions, and they kind of blended it all together and had the Samaritan religion. And, G- and the, the Jews come back to the land, and these people that have now been there for a few generations were like, ah, we don't really want you here. And there were tensions. So the commission to rebuild the wall was stalled over and over and over again. Guess for how long? 
almost a century. So 90 years later, after they'd been released, in and around 440, God equips an intellectual Jewish man who was still living in the former Babylon, who was like one of the head technocrats to the king at the time. His name was Nehemiah. A man of God, but a man of high standing. A man in government, a paid official. Also the cupbearer to the king. He's the guy, you know, I'll, t- I'll, I'll sip your wine before you do to make sure it's not poison. Very trusted man. God sends Nehemiah to Jerusalem to commission and to head up the rebuilding of the Jerusalem wall. And the opposition was fierce. So what we learned during this episode of Nehemiah is that we do not bow down to opposition, we bow down to God. Never bow to anyone or anything or any system or any government or any person, but bow to God. And this is what keeps you focused. Because as soon as you bow the knee to anything other than God, they own you. They control you. So you, you do not bow. And the saga then continues in chapter 2 of Nehemiah as spiritual forces try to foil the worship of God's people. So join me in verse 17, Nehemiah 2. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. So again, if you're reading Ezra, and you're, I don't know, you read it in an hour and then you just read through to Nehemiah, you might think, oh, this is like a month later. No, this is like 90 years later. This is how long they've been stalled out after release. It kind of reminds me of today, by the way, I'll just say this, that when things started to open up in our province, what I noticed, because I was talking to a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds, is everyone was so excited. Oh, the big box store is opening up. Oh, I'm back to work. Oh, my employer called me back. I can start to rebuild my retirement portfolio. No one's opposing that. Everyone's on the sidelines. You know, some of the Tim Hortons, you can go into them now. All the secondary stuff, totally content to keep the church closed. Totally content. Opposition here, only praise and celebration over here. And you're telling me it's not a spiritual battle? Right? And, and this, is, this, is where, this is where we tend to go when we're opposed publicly. We're like, well, I'm just going to go and rebuild my bank accounts. This has cost me a lot. I'm going to go and rebuild my business. You know, I want to get back into my routines. And, and we can just, we, we do that because we're never going to be opposed building our own houses. Who's going to oppose that? Capitalism is going to encourage it. But rebuilding the church... And unfortunately, some of the greatest opposition, I'll just share this without sharing any details. The greatest opposition I've experienced in the last three months is is from God's people. The greatest opposition is from God's people. And here we have the people of God opposed rebuilding the wall. So they just go off and rebuild their little villages. Nehemiah comes in and he says, actually, this isn't right. And in verse 18, and I told them of the hand of my God that has been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, 
let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Here we have Nehemiah. Nehemiah was successful in rousing the believers to get back to working on the things of God. And yet they were opposed. Their Samaritan half-brothers opposed them. By the way, this explains why under Jesus' ministry 500 years later, remember the whole Good Samaritan incident? The Good Samaritan actually outshines the Jews, which wasn't really supposed to happen. But you understand the reason why the Jews hated the Samaritans and were opposed to the Samaritans. Two reasons. Spiritually, they considered them to be polluted with Gentile culture. But secondly, the reality was 500 years later, they were their arch enemies and they opposed the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So you can understand the feuding there between these two groups for so long. In verse 19, it tells us of one of those episodes. And then Sanballat, the Horonite, that's a tribe within Samaria. So he was a Samaritan. And Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it. They jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? You are rebelling against the king. It's kind of like, you know, what's the most famous verse that's been quoted during this whole pandemic? Romans 13, right? Everybody knows Romans 13 now. Don't ever speak out against the government. Don't ever say anything. Just kind of do what they tell you to do. Total misinterpretation of that scripture, I believe, in terms of application. But here they had... Opposition from Sanballat, and this is just a little summary of it. He was writing letters against them. They had to post centuries at the wall so they didn't get attacked at night. And on this, this went on and on and on. This was like a, a major uphill battle. Fortunately, the wall was eventually rebuilt. But it begs the question, who are your Sanballats? Who are your Sanballats? Yours may be different than mine, but who are your Sanballats? What's going to hold you back? What's most likely to hold you back from serving the Lord in the days and weeks to come? Is your Sanballat fear? Is your Sanballat anger? Confusion? Excuses? Illness? The distraction of rebuilding your own village? Who is your Sanballat? Now, Nehemiah was not an intellectual weakling. But it's interesting, as you look at his response, he immediately goes vertical with people. He just points them back to God. Now, he takes care of things in the, in the moment. You know, he, he posts the centuries. centuries. He has uh, teams put together. You rebuild this gate. You rebuild this gate. You guys are over here doing this work. And he kind of divvies up responsibilities. There's a, there's a horizontal strategy to everything. But in his conversation with the people of God, He points people up. Verse 20, he replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Pushes back. Pushes back. Now, this might seem to the secular ear like naive, ignorant, religious, right-wing fanaticism. And you might start to buckle and bow because those words, none of those words sound super awesome to most of our ears. But one needn't check their mind at the door to follow and obey what God has called his people to do. 
One could be an intellectual giant in a sea of ignoramuses. One can be a man or woman of God in spite of the rampant, secular, materialistic worldview that we live our lives in, 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 within in this culture. So it doesn't mean that you have to be stupid to follow the call of Christ. But God has called us to a clear commission to glorify him, to enjoy him forever, and to make disciples. And this is the kind of tenacity that we must increasingly see among the people of God. Do we agree with that? Undistracted, relaxed in the presence of God, resolute in our calling to build the kingdom of God and to worship Christ regardless of the consequences. So I'm calling you as my brothers and sisters today to tenacious faith. That means we need to up our game in worship, up our game in witness, and we mustn't falter. And we do so, by the way, let me just remind you of a doctrine in Scripture which is more than theoretical and correct. It's life-changing. It's the doctrine of the bodily resurrection of the saints. This puts a whole different perspective on things. The gospel, by the way, for those of you that might not be familiar, is we could divide it up into bad news and good news. I'll start with the bad news. The bad news is, is you're not actually as good as your mom told you you were. All of us are born in sin because our forebears, Adam and Eve, sinned against God. And all of us are born with a bent towards sin. And then we express that with our lies and our covetousness and our anger at others and our unbridled tempers and our lust and our materialism and our idolatry. Hey, who among us could not say, yeah, I've sinned way more than once. Now that means that God cannot allow you into heaven any more than we can allow COVID positive people into our church. Nobody would be here if we knew someone came through the door and they're like, coughing. What's wrong with you? I got, I got the virus. No, you're going to pollute everybody. In the same way, the perfect and holy God of the universe cannot allow even an ounce of sin into his eternal abode. So that's the bad news, right? What does that mean? Eternally damned, separated from God. When you understand that, you realize you need a savior. And the savior is Jesus Christ. So God the Son comes into this world fully God, fully man, which means he can fully forgive sin and fully die in our place. And he lives among us the perfect life and he dies on a cross for our sins. And he takes the virus of sin into his own body on the tree and he suffers under its weight and he is punished for its consequences and he goes into the grave. But three days later, he rises victorious over sin and death. And the means of salvation is not, well, correct your life. The means of salvation is you need to have some of his life in you. And Christ gives you his life when you put your faith in him and him alone for your salvation. His life, his victory, his successes become yours in the record of God. And then God lets you into heaven when you die because of the merits of Jesus Christ, not because of your own And I would encourage you, I would beseech you, if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ to do that, and don't delay. 
Because if you have not learned by now how fragile your life is, what more do you need? 70 years of exile? Like, what more do you need? But when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean you throw yourself in front of cars (laughs) or you go bungee jumping without the bungee. But it does mean that you're able to weigh out risk and reward in life because you know ultimately that you have resurrection hope. So you're never stalled. You're never stuck. You're never stalled. You're always moving forward, sometimes with greater cautiousness than others, but you're always moving forward because you have resurrection hope and nothing takes you off your mission. You never stop worshiping. You never stop witnessing. You never stop celebrating what God has done. 